0: Once, a long, long ago, at the time when Brahmadatta was ruling in Benares, there was an elderly woman named Priya, and she had a, a little calf. And this calf was of a, a very unusual, pure, beautiful color. It was jet black without even a single spot of any other color. And even when quite small, this little calf seemed to carry himself with a, a very royal kind of noble bearing. This calf was the Bodhisatta, the one who would become the Buddha. And Priya raised the little calf uh, just as if he were her, her her own child. And even though she was quite poor, she fed him the best food she could, the finest rice she could afford. Sometimes she even made uh, a rice porridge for the little calf. And she patted his head and neck and he licked her hand and followed her everywhere she went. And this is often the way with true affection and friendship. And she called the calf, my little one. And when the people in the village uh, saw them going around and saw what dear friends they were, They called the calf Grandma's Little, or just Little for short. And over time, the little calf grew and grew and became a magnificent strong bull. Jet black coat glistened like sunlight on the water. His horns and hooves looked like polished silver and his tongue was the color of a late season red rose. And even when he grew to a very magnificent size, very impressive, large beast, he remained really tame and gentle. <clears throat> and the village children would play with him. They'd hold onto his neck or his tail or his horns and they'd swing up, grabbing his tail, to swing up onto his back and go for a ride. But he didn't ever complain or treat them roughly because he liked children, he was always patient and gentle. One day the friendly bull thought, the loving woman who brought me up is like a kind mother to me. She raised me as if I were her own child, fed me the best she possibly could. She is poor and in need, but is too kind and too humble to ask me to work, too gentle to force me into labor, She is my true friend. Because I love her as my own mother, I want to help her in some way. And so Little began looking for work. One day, a caravan of 500 carts approached the village. Each cart was pulled by a pair of uh, bullocks. And it stopped near the river Ford to cross there. And to continue on the journey along the main pathway. But that year the seasonal rains had been really heavy and the water was running quite swiftly. And the bullocks couldn't pull the carts across. It was too difficult. And the caravan leader even tried hitching all 500 pairs, that's a thousand, to one cart and they couldn't do it. So, it was a problem. He started looking for some help. and He wandered into the village and uh, he was known and was actually famous uh, where he was from as being a, 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 an expert judge of livestock. Just at a glance, he could tell the qualities of an animal. And he noticed the village herd was wandering nearby and uh, he saw grandma's little one once and he stood out Said, that bull is no ordinary beast. A noble bull like that surely has the strength and the will, the determination to pull my carts across the river. And he saw some villagers nearby and he said, oh, to whom does that big bull belong? I would like to use him to pull my caravan across the river. And I'm willing to pay his owner for the services. And the villagers said, his master is not here but by all means, take him. His owner will be very glad of the money. And so the caravan leader approached Little, Grandma's little one, and he put a noose, uh, a rope, through uh, his collar. Not a noose, but a rope through the collar, and he tried to lead him away. And he pulled as hard as he could, but he couldn't budge Little, because the bull was thinking, until this man says what he will pay me, I will not move. (laughs) Now, being such a good judge of bulls, the caravan leader thought to himself, this bull knows both his worth and his measure. I shall have to offer him a fair wage if I want him to agree to pull my carts. He said, my dear bull, which is the proper way to address bulls, after you have pulled my 500 carts across the river, I will pay you two gold coins for each cart, not just one, but two. Hearing this, Grandma's little one went with him at once. The man harnessed him to the yoke on the uh, first cart, and Little pulled it across easily. Not even a thousand of the other bullocks could do this. And then in the same way, he pulled each cart across, one after the other, didn't even stop to take a break. When this was done, the caravan leader thought to himself, my offer of two gold coins per cart was made in haste. Surely I can get away with paying only one gold coin per cart. This bull may be strong and noble, but he is still just a bull. He will never know the difference. So he made up a package, got a a cloth bag and put um, 500 coins in there. And he hung it around the bull's mighty bull's neck And little one thought, this man promised two gold coins per cart. But that is not what he has hung around my neck. He thinks I can't tell the difference. And he's trying to cheat me. I will not let him leave. So he went to the front of the caravan and he blocked the way. And the caravan later went and tried to push him out of the way, not moving. Then he tried to drive the carts around, but the other bulls, had seen how strong little was, and they wouldn't move. So the caravan leader, he thought to himself, well, there's no doubt that this is a very intelligent bull. (laughs) He knows that I have only given him half pay. There's no way to cheat a bull like this. And if I don't pay him what I promised, I'm never getting back on the road. So he made up a new package, put the 1,000 coins that he would promised in the bag, put that around the bull's neck. And so Little moved out of the way, he crossed back over the river, and he started walking directly towards his home. And along the way, some of the village children tried to to grab the package off from around his neck because they thought it had all been some kind of game. But Little... uh, He gently pushed them aside with his his great velvety nose. And he escaped them without hurting any of them, or frightening them. And when he came home and Priya saw the heavy package around his neck, the cloth bag, she was very, very surprised. And the children who had followed all the way to the house told her the story of what had happened down by the river. So she carefully removed the package from around Little's neck, found the gold coins there. She also saw the tired look in her child's eyes. She said, oh, my son, do you think I wish to live off the money you earn? Why did you work so hard and suffer so? No matter how difficult it may be, I will always care for you and look after you. And then uh, Grandma Priya and the children washed the great bowl and they massaged his tired muscles with perfumed oil he glistened even more than ever, she fed and cared for him just as she always had, and they lived together in affectionate companionship through good days and bad days, all the ups and downs that come in lifetime until the end of their long lives. The end <laughs> <laughs> this evening. Uh, I want to do the part two of uh, a talk looking at the teachings in the Metta Sutta. And again, I'll uh, we'll be chanting from that uh, teaching in the English version that's on the sheets that some of you have and um, is the translation that was done by the uh, Thai Forest Sangha. I'll begin uh, with some chanting now. Uh, at the part where uh, it says, even as a mother protects with her life. And please join me if you'd like to. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, Should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, read from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. We'll get to the last bit. So the first line there, which uh, ties a bit into the story I told, with this reference to a mother's love uh, for her child. And in this, uh, in this sutta, in the teaching, it's spoken of in terms of protection. Now, this could bring up a lot for some, some of us. Perhaps a better translation would be, as a good mother, as a skilled mother, as a loving mother would care for her child, because sometimes uh, this care does not happen. Sometimes relationships between a mother and child or, or any parent and children in general can be difficult and sometimes very, very harmful situations there. And this is a, a sad truth in the world. And we live in times that uh, certainly understand and acknowledge the, uh, the reality of depression that can come at the time of birth for a new mother And there is a profound loss of freedom that comes when a child comes into one's life. But I think we can have some sense and appreciation for what these words are trying to touch uh, and point to. Um, We could think of it as an emotion that's so universal and so, uh, in a way, directly accessible or that almost anyone could sense into. That it is a, a beautiful, I think, can be a beautiful, powerful uh, metaphor image for the uh, quality of metta, loving kindness. Because in theory, at least, the love that a mother feels for her child is has this natural, immediate, uh, strong quality. It's... Almost like a, a biological imperative, deeply rooted uh, and uh, often the sense that a mother would place the child of her life ahead of her own life, as is, uh, as it's spoken about in this uh, in the words from the Sutta, this sense of a love that is entirely giving and asks for nothing in return, there's no. Nothing asked for in that kind of love. The Buddha was teaching um, in uh, rural places, rural parts of India, and often used images that uh, came from the lives of the people who worked the land and tended animals and grew crops and lived that kind of life. And this is found throughout the texts. and in one of the uh, one of the commentaries, they have this description of metta is likened to uh, the love of a a mother cow for her calf, which comes from this uh, this from this time and place. Most of us probably don't spend a lot of time around cows and calves. Uh, maybe some of you live on a farm, but they're not cruising around in the in the cities and towns. There aren't any in in Barry Town, although they're nearby here, the farm up the hill. One time I was living in Upper Burma, and I, I was uh, wearing the, the robes of a Buddhist monk at that time. And I was spending a period of retreat living in a, a cave up in the Sagayang Hills. Mm, my favorite place in that part of the world. Have you been there, Bhante? Have you been to Sagang? Yeah. It's a beautiful place. And I was staying in a cave. It was, um, as caves go, it was pretty nice. <laughs> even had a little upper sort of balcony. <laughs> but it was a cave. And, uh, <laughs> you know, fairly um, simple lodging there. And uh, every morning I would walk down out of the hills and um, along the, the main pathway and then a, a dirt road into the village, into Wachette. And um, it was always, I loved it because it was, they were like these, s- these paths were like little streams that would trickle down to this main uh, river and different um, people going into town. Uh, many of them were going in on alms round in the morning and uh, I would go follow the same route. <laughs> Every day, and one morning I came around the corner, and there was a a, a cow was standing there with her brand new calf. She was uh, it was just barely had just stood up, it was wobbly, and she was cleaning it off and uh, giving it a bath. And uh, it was such a striking image of the quality of love there. I, it made me have this sort of very um, direct and visceral sense of why this image might be used and and the love of metta being likened to that kind of love, this just natural um, movement of the heart there. And this section uh, speaks about the, the, the inclusive nature of metta. One cherish all living beings and also to the um, boundless, vast uh, quality of it. Upwards, downwards in all directions, outwards, unbounded. And there's this sense of of, um, this this expansion of the quality to the point where there are no longer boundaries in the heart, in the mind. A sense of being, I see it as kind of the feeling or sense of being um, kind of centered within a, a space that has no edges or boundaries of any kind. In the sense that this space then is permeated with this quality. It's like a radiance that flows out in all directions. And this quality of metta really does have the potential to become that vast. To become a a sense of boundlessness there. heart and mind can actually become big enough to hold all beings without exception and I feel for me this also implies that there is this um, there's potentially a profound impact that this uh, this radiation of a mind heart that's imbued with this quality can have in the world actually there's a reality to that spreading out not just a, a nice image or thought. Boundless quality that would spill out and touch all beings. Those who uh, who I've met who spent time practicing with the teacher, uh, Deepama, many of you have heard of Deepama. It's a very um, beloved teacher, very... Um, very good yogi, and uh, people said that it was, um, being around her was um, just like being uh, bathed in love. And it made me think of a, uh, a monk, I can't remember if I told a story about Mahagosananda at this retreat. Maybe some of you met Mahagosananda. He was the Sangha Raja, the king of the Sangha of Cambodia. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, I think five or six times. Should have won it that many times. There's a beautiful photograph of him uh, that I've seen. I know they have one at a, this uh, gratitude hut they have at Spirit Rock. And he and the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama are facing one another. And they're both bent over almost double and the, each one is trying to get lower to show the greater respect. And he lived uh, and ended his life living in a small temple not far from here. And I used to uh, be able to go visit him once in a while. And, um, when he got older, his, uh, he lost a lot of certain aspects of his um, mental abilities, as happens sometimes with, uh, in the aging process and it seemed that everything fell away but metta at a certain point and one of the last times i saw him <coughs> i had gone over and one of the monks that was uh looking after him his one of his attendants was there and he said oh he's in his room you can go and and pay respects i just wanted to pay respects and and uh when I went into the room it brings up a lot of emotion to think of this. Uh, he turned and he was just beaming. And he didn't know me as I wasn't an old friend. I was just a living being who came in there. And he started handing me uh, bars of soap and and packages of and toothpaste and things that he had there. And it was just it was like being washed in love and light. In the uh, Digha Nikaya, I think the uh, longer uh, discourses, um, there's a sutta, the Tevijya sutta. And there's one line in there that that, kind of captures some of this flavor to me. It follows after... um, The Buddha saying, giving that description of how one practices kindness that we chanted last night. One abides pervading one quarter and the second and so on. And, uh, And it follows that. It says, just as if a mighty trumpeter were with little difficulty to make a proclamation to the four directions, so by the liberation of mind through the development of loving kindness, one sets an example, leaving nothing untouched there. Nothing unaffected there. Since that that this radiation goes out and nothing is untouched by that. There's an understanding that we find in the Buddha's teachings that's spoken to and and really... um, Implied very directly by a few short words in this in this uh, same section of the Metta Sutta, the line that says "freed from hatred and ill will," which is also in that uh, description of the practice of Metta. It's the last, near the end of that, and and it's this understanding that in the absence of hatred and ill will that the qualities of metta and the other viharas these just arise. They arise just naturally. There's the implication in this that in the absence of the unwholesome or unskillful, the wholesome reveals itself. It's just the nature, the natural response of the heart. We can bring a certain kind of intentionality to this understanding and the process there, by um, bringing to mind, holding in mind, uh, this teaching that's very simple but profound, and we've mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. Uh, Buddha once said, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. And he goes on in that teaching to speak about this in terms of abandoning unwholesome thoughts, and cultivating wholesome ones. And one uh, speaks about this in a lot of ways, but uh, one part he says, if one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of kindness, one has abandoned thoughts of ill will to cultivate thoughts of kindness. And then one, one's mind inclined, inclines to thoughts of kindness. He's pointing to the, uh, the, the natural way that this, this can occur, does occur. In any one mind moment, it's not possible that it can contain both a skillful and an unskillful or a wholesome and an unwholesome emotional tone. It might go between them quickly, but both are not there at the same time. And if we intentionally um, let go of, turn away from, not pushing away or um, repressing, but in a more skillful way, of uh, letting go of uh, thoughts of ill will and intentionally bring thoughts of care and kindness, of love to the mind and the heart, there is this purification through that process. The presence of the wholesome state and the absence of the unwholesome state. In the Satipatthana Sutta in the third foundation of mindfulness, citta nupassana, contemplation of mind, Where we're, the teaching is very simple and so useful. The instruction there, we bring attention to uh, the overall quality of the mind. So for example, we notice the presence of desire, of greed, of grasping, and the absence. The mind affected by that, the mind that's not affected by that. The mind that's affected by ill will, and the mind unaffected by ill will and so forth. There's different mental energies. We, we're not told to duke it out with anything. We just bring mindfulness to the presence, the absence of these things. We see this is how it is in the mind stream at any moment. And there's a, an important consideration in this. Because when the unskillful, the suffering energies, the difficult energies, these misguided energies of greed, hatred, and delusion delusion of the kilesas, these roots of suffering, when they're not present, when they're not arising, or they're not holding sway over the mind, they're not running the show, then the wholesome roots of well-being and freedom they're just revealed. They arise spontaneously. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, kindness, compassion, gladness, joy, equanimity. They, they arise as, as a natural response to life. Because the mind, the heart's nat- nature is love. so it's important we we touch into and sense this because uh, we're not trying to find metta somewhere and stick it in there. Mm-hmm. It's not what we're doing in this practice. We're not finding something we don't have and somehow getting it, putting it into the mind and heart, discovering it somewhere out in the world. or We're uncovering something that is perhaps has been temporarily obscured, that gets obscured at times. There's a poem uh, that Joseph Goldstein uh, used to share a lot, and wasn't sure I wanted to read it, because he used to be around a lot, but it's, it's so apropos. Um, so I'm going to read just the first stanza of a poem by Galway Cannell called St. Francis and the Sow that speaks very directly to this. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. So sometimes we have to reteach ourselves. We do things to uncover the obscurations of the nature. The last line of this section uh, refers to Metta as as one of these divine abidings, the Brahma Viharas. In this translation, it says sublime. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I think, uh, I'm not sure. I I have a sense they may have chosen uh, the word sublime because the word divine maybe has um, a lot of connotations for some of us. And um, maybe it's a less loaded word. Whatever word we might choose to use, Um, what this is pointing to is the fact, the sense that in any moment, when the mind, the heart, are suffused with this quality of kindness, with love, with compassion, with care, with simple friendliness, when that is, uh, the mind and heart are infused with this, it it is a divine abiding in that, at that time, a sublime abiding, a heavenly abiding. There's a sense of, of connection, ease, fulfillment, wholeness, completion in that moment. So then we come to the last uh, lines, the last section of this teaching it's the shortest part. There's just three, uh, three short lines, really one phrase in three lines usually that way. And it, it has a very different tone from the rest of the teaching. There's a shift away from the description and practice of metta in a certain sense. And, and more of a shift towards a wisdom, liberating insight. And pointing to uh, the final liberation and the heart's true release. And I'll chant that last part. <clears throat> By not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. Sometimes people have expressed uh, that they, they find this kind of jarring or, or odd that, that the sutta ends this way. It feels like it's so different from the rest of the, the teaching. as though somehow this, there's something, something off about this shift away from what can feel like this boundless inclusion uh, of all beings and this, this focus in that way, this pure generosity, and, and as though this points to something that's more um, self-centered in some way or more focused on uh, personal freedom or something like that. I think it's actually, um, you know, who knows? It's a long time ago when these teachings were were spoken. They were spoken and remembered orally through memorization for a long time. So we can't know exactly what was said. And the words from Polly translated to English, there's a lot of different versions. But I think... Um, it's actually in my my feeling is that there's there's no uh, contradiction or or anything off about the sutta ending this way. It really gets right to uh the only thing the Buddha was ever teaching about or interested in was liberation of heart and mind. Everything he taught was in service of that. And as we walk this path and as as our understanding deepens, I think what we discover, I think it's inevitable that we discover that there's no way that our practice is ever just about us. It can't possibly be. I think it's not possible that that would ever be the case. At least not in the the long run. Maybe at times it might feel that way. We can feel that sometimes on retreat. We feel like, well, I'm just in my own own world here. Can feel very um, inwardly focused. But to whatever degree we bring wisdom and love forth into the world through our understanding, through the understandings we gain here, which we can't help but do that just through our being we don't have to be intentionally trying to put it out there there's there's uh, it's a sense that it, it touches all who who we come into contact with and that flowing out we have no idea but it's never limited to just ourselves it's just not possible and my sense of this my uh, understanding of this only grows the longer that I walk this path. And these lines point to the transcendent and liberating potential of these practices. And there's reference here to the pure-hearted one. It's not not such a literal translation but there's something I love about it sense of the pure-hearted one. I've met some very pure-hearted beings in my life. To me, this, this is something I, I can taste and feel so directly. And, and uh, you know, the sense of the mind purified of the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so we could see, well, maybe this is pointing to the, the, the fully awakened one one who has uprooted these energies from the mind stream where they no longer arise. But, um, but I think all of us at moments can touch this pure-hearted place. Because these energies are not always there. Maybe a lot, but there are moments when they're not arising. Look and see. Maybe they're not there right now, or maybe they're there, but they they don't move the mind in any way. There are descriptions in this short section about uh, qualities that uh, characterize and and support the arising of liberating uh, wisdom. And, and the first of these is this, uh, the very first words, by not holding to fixed views, not holding to fixed views. And then in the Buddha's teaching and understanding, and we've been talking about this in so many ways and almost all of Sally's talk last night was about this, the sense that views are, are these limited fabrications of the mind. But, um, often do more to confuse and distort our understanding than to bring any cl- real clarity there. And in the understanding, what is called a wise or right view has much more to do with um, seeing through and removing distorted, mistaken views than with building up a more correct set of views. It's not about that. And through this process of seeing through mistaken views, seeing through fixed views, as it's stated in the, in the chant, in the, this translation, when these are removed, we can see reality. And wise or right view is, is there. It arises. So it was never this value judgment on the part of the Buddha that said, this set of views is better than that one. <laughs> You know, that happens a lot. I asked to adopt uh, a particular set of views, <laughs> let go of some other ones. We see this in in the world, maybe in a lot of spiritual teachings it can show up that way. That wasn't what the Buddha was ever suggesting you know, as though one view is superior to another view he he was said, "See, let go of all views." <laughs> You know if we could take one example that we've been talking about came up this morning with a question, and uh, is, you know we're not substituting the view of not self as superior to the view that there is a self, you know, like some some stance or belief we adopt there. It's not what we're doing. what we're doing is seeing through a mistaken view we're seeing through this. Uh, the way that we attribute solidity and inherent ongoing existence to a feeling that arises at certain times. We see that we don't have to get rid of self because we see it's, it's just a mistaken view, <laughs> just from not seeing clearly. that what we call self is just this feeling. There's not a thing. It's a causal arising When certain conditions are there, it shows up. And then it passes away. I mean, how many different selves showed up today (laughs) in the mind and the heart? The good yogi, the bad yogi, the hopeless case. Which one's true? There's all kinds of examples of uh, these fixed views that one might hold on to. You know, all the stories that we've adopted as our own, either that we told ourselves or someone else has told to us about who and what we are, and we've taken them on, and they may even have become kind of self-fulfilling, but they're not reflections of the truth necessarily at all. But they lead to so much stress and struggle and suffering in our lives. Again, so much of Sally's talk last night in this fabricated world of views, all the ways we identify as ourselves. I'm a fearful person. I'm not lovable. I'm no good at this. I can't do this. There's something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with anybody in this room. So in this teaching, in the sutta, the Buddha isn't telling us that these views are are wrong and bad and our job is to make sure that they never arise, that they don't happen. But we're advised and instructed to see them for what they are. And this caution that we don't necessarily believe everything that the mind conjures up. This is a profound possibility. This is not a little thing, that we might have a little space around the fabricated world of our our thoughts. And we start to recognize this habitual tendency of the mind to create these limited versions of reality. We start to see when we are holding to fixed views. We understand and we start to release that because of this dukkha there. And so, uh, back to this definition, I started the talk, last talk, with, with uh, metta as kindness with awareness. We see these views through uh, this lens of kind-hearted awareness, kindness with awareness, awareness infused with kindness. And bring these two together, and we see, it, we see them as just arising, empty, passing objects, just the same as a sight or a sound or any other sense contact. And if we don't hold onto them, we see they just fall away by themselves and there's nothing there. I've spoken a lot about uh, one deeply held, widely pervasive, uh, fixed, mistaken fixed view. that <laughs> we see in the world this view that uh, transient, pleasant experiences have the ability to bring lasting satisfaction. Not that there's anything at all wrong with pleasant experiences. And of course we've we've said this over and over, but really important, we see that they're not the problem, it's just that we need to stop asking them to provide something they can never provide, a source of lasting happiness, contentment. They're not a reliable strategy for finding that. And so the practice of metta is powerful here because it can open us to a kind of uh, what we could call a non-worldly kind of happiness, a non-worldly kind of pleasure, a happiness that isn't connected to the world of sense contacts, and ultimately more satisfying, deeper kind of uh, quieter, deeper contentment, a kind of happiness of that nature. And we taste this sometimes when the heart is imbued with kindness of metta. So metta can help us see through these mistaken fixed views and turn the mind and heart towards uh, a a more uh, reliable kind of happiness. So the clarity of vision in this, uh, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision not focused on Satisfying, passing to sense desires, turning towards this deeper kind of happiness, freed from all sense desires, freed from the power of craving, this root cause of suffering. And it's important that we understand there's a difference in this sense of freedom here. There's a difference between this the arising of it, of desire of craving, craving, grasping in the mind and and uh and freedom there, the freedom is not necessarily dependent on it, never arising, I think we've seen this you know there's times when it it can arrive but arise, but um it's just an arising there's a beautiful quotation from a a nun and and forgive me if I've already read this uh, but it's so good. It won't hurt you to hear it again if I have. This is from uh, Mei Chi Kao, a Thai uh, nun who died in the 70s, I think, early 80s, who was um, believed to be understood, uh, held to be fully enlightened. Uh, her teacher was Ajahn Mun, very famous, and Ajahn Mahabua, two very famous teachers in Thailand. And this is a few words from her that speak to this. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known, earth, water, fire, and wind, body, feelings, memory, thought, consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and delusion. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. And we can get a taste of this possibility, this kind of freedom, any moment when the mind and the heart are not under the sway of these energies. They don't always have the upper hand. Look now, right now. So this points towards this sense of uh, freedom. Perhaps to the complete uprooting and abandonment of them. (coughs) These energies that keep us bound to this wheel of endless wandering. And spoken to in the final line, this pure-hearted one is not born again into this world. This final release from these rounds of, of birth death, rebirth. And, and we don't have to see this literally, but you can see it in terms of taking birth in each moment into these different selves and the endlessness of that. The repetitive thought cycles, habitual patterns that uh, lead us into stress and struggle and lead to suffering. Taking birth into those over and over the release from that cycle. And it's really, I think, so fitting and appropriate that this teaching ends in this way, because this is the thrust of the Buddhist teaching. And uh, metta then is seen not only as integral to this uh, movement, to this path, but as in and of itself as a path of peace, a path leading to peace. This is what's done by one skilled in goodness who knows the path of peace, the opening line of the sutta. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine, colleague, um, told me that on uh, on her Facebook page, I, which I, I've never seen a Facebook page, but I've heard about it. <laughs> and um, you can say things about yourself there. Uh, I guess that's the point. But she changed her religion to kindness in response to a famous quotation from His Holiness the Dalai Lama who said, "Uh, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And you know, we've heard these words, probably almost everyone in this hall has heard these words, maybe heard them many times and can feel this uh, that they sound kind of like a a cliché or maybe something you'd find inside a greeting card. And we can miss the profound understanding that these words point to, I think. But if we think of religion as uh, maybe as kind of the worldly manifestation or expression of of, um, the deepest kinds of understanding, spiritual understanding, then we might be able to touch what he was pointing to here when he made the statement my religion is simple my religion is kindness when the deepest understandings are integrated into our being then kindness as our religion is just the natural expression of the mind and heart it's the expression of this understanding it's not a choice or some decision we make or a stance we adopt it's just the, uh, you could say the way that this understanding then manifests in the relational world. And so in an essential way, I think we can see and feel through this teaching and through our practice over time that the practice of freedom is the practice of love and the practice of love is the practice of freedom. These are not uh, separate from one another. There are these beautiful lines from a great Indian teacher, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, that um, I love, that uh, speak to this very directly, for me anyway. He once said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows." And the wisdom that might tell us, I am nothing, doesn't point to some um, bleak emptiness or disintegration or annihilation or non existence, but this um, deep peace born of understanding that's characterized by uh, this clear, unrestricted kind of spaciousness that we find expressed in the teachings of the metta-sutta. This unrestricted space that's um, has free of the separation of self and other there. And so if we're nothing in that way, if wisdom tells, we are noth- tells us we are nothing in that way, then there are no barriers in that space to the expression of love kindness, care, compassion, they are just arising out of that emptiness and flowing forth, spreading out like a radiance into the world, into the universe. And so being nothing in that way, inevitably we are everything. There's no barrier there. And so then love and wisdom flow together. It's like when two rivers come together in a confluence and they, at first you can see some distinction then they blend and become just one. Near where I live, the the mighty Colorado and the Green River come together, not too far from where I live. It's a ways, but within striking distance. a Days long drive. And one, the Colorado is quite red, and the word means that, and the green is green. And, and they come together, and they flow side by side, and they're distinct for a while, but then in a little while, and you can't find, tell them apart. They become one thing. So this leads us to um, one of the most beautiful um, expressions of the heart of kindness, at least I see it this way, and that's uh, the quality of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta means literally bodhi, awakened, citta, mind, heart wakened mind, wakened heart. And so on the relational level, as I've been saying for a while now, it's this um, manifestation as kindness, care, compassion. The heart response in the face of uh, the human condition, you could say. Bhante was speaking to this this morning, this natural response of the heart. On the ultimate level, what we could think of as a more ultimate level, bodhicitta is this uh, empty, aware nature of the mind, which is in, in itself filled with love and light. This empty, aware nature, free of self and other, these concepts. No boundaries, no barriers in there. And then, in the, so in a simple sense, bodhicitta reflects this understanding that our own happiness, the happiness of others, is a third one and the same thing, ultimately. And we can hold this understanding in our mind and heart. We can approach our practice this way, as a gift, as an offering. This motivation, born of love and compassion, connection, that we awaken this understanding that we cannot help but awaken for the benefit of all beings and we can consciously bring this to mind. We can dedicate our practice in this way. I'm gonna end this evening with uh, some phrases, some verses from uh, Shantideva in the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And I think Jeannie, uh, one of us, I think it was Jeannie read some of these lines, but I find them so beautiful, uh, expression of this quality of bodhicitta. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, the nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine, and in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance, and for sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, (coughs) and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing, (laughs) to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. And thus for everything that lives as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering.